0: Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. So you may know, if you've listened for a while, that I am a big Jim Henson fan. I talked to Hallie Stanford, who's the president of television at the Jim Henson Company a few weeks ago. And Hallie had mentioned, I think during the interview, that John Tartaglia is somebody that I should talk to. And John is awesome. He is the guest today. We made it happen, and I was just—I I can't tell you how excited I was to talk to him. Just he and I have, I think, a lot in common, just in terms of sort of shared interests in the Jim Henson world, and the Disney world. It, it felt like, in talking to him, like somebody that just understood the same language that I was speaking, which was awesome. And it's funny. I hope he won't be mad at this characterization, but, like, he reminds me a lot of Walter the Muppet in the 2011 Muppets movie starring Jason Siegel. If you haven't seen that movie, basically Jason Siegel obviously plays a human and he has a Muppet as a younger brother. And this Muppet just dreams. His name is Walter. He watches the Muppets every day and feels like this is the world that he belongs in. You know, he's, he's stuck in this human world, but he really just wants to go and be a Muppet and live with the Muppets. And so they take a trip to Los Angeles to go to Muppet studios And it turns out that the Muppets have disbanded years ago, and the studio is semi-abandoned. And Walter ends up getting the gang back together and saving the studio and, you know, renovating it and putting on this great show and ends up accepted as a Muppet. And now he's, like, he's canon. He's part of the Muppets. And that is sort of how I view John. (laughs) as like this guy that just... Loved the Muppets growing up. And you'll hear his story, not just the Muppets, but Fraggle Rock maybe more specifically was sort of where his passion was. And, you know, admired Jim Henson and ended up working in all the different places that Jim created. He was the youngest performer to ever work on Sesame Street as a puppeteer. He started there at 16 as an assistant puppeteer. And you'll hear that whole story today. It's fascinating. And by the way, just for me, a Muppet performer and understanding like the technical aspects of that job. I've always wanted to have that conversation. And I got to indulge in that some today with John. So that was awesome. John went on to originate the roles of Princeton and Rod and Avenue Q, which obviously is, you know, very Muppet inspired. But he also has a lot of other Broadway credits. He played Lumiere in Disney's Beauty and the Beast. He was in Shrek the Musical. And so, you know, he has this performative side to him which is fascinating. And, you know, it's it's a side that I can't quite relate to, but I'm very fascinated in. But he's also a producer and director, and that side obviously is very close to my heart and, and a world that I understand. And so we talked a lot about sort of that life. He is one of the executive producers on the new Fraggle Rock series for Apple TV, as well as a Fraggle performer. They also did this series, and I talked with Hallie about this a few months ago, Fraggle Rock, Rock On, which was sort of in the early days of the quarantine, having all the Fraggle performers working from home and, you know, doing their fraggles literally to iPhones. So we talked a little bit about Fraggle Rock, uh, but he's also, uh, he created and executive produced a number of series, Johnny and the Sprites for the Disney Channel, Splash and Bubbles for PBS Kids, and a lot of them, you know, involved with the Jim Henson Company, which is awesome. That whole world is so fascinating to me. And it's one of those things, I, I started getting there with Hallie and getting deeper there with John now of like... I realized there was kind of this latent Muppet interest that, like, if if you came up to me and said, are you a fan of the Muppets? I don't know that I would have said yes six months ago necessarily, but, like, I totally am. And the more I talk to people from Henson, the more I'm like, oh, yeah, this is, like, a world that I have been fascinated by all of my life and have been watching these videos all of my life and wondering how it works And all of a sudden, you know, I get a chance to have these conversations and let you guys listen in on them. You know, the other piece of John's world that was fascinating to me is working on cruise ships. He directed a number of shows for Princess Cruises and for Carnival Cruises, Jim Henson's Inspired Silliness on Princess, Stephen Schwartz's The Secret Silk on Princess, and, uh, you know, I've done a number of cruises with my family. And the part that is the most interesting to me always are these nighttime shows. They put on these like 45-minute Broadway-style shows in a single theater every night. The shows rotate throughout your cruise. So, you know, it's not one show the duration of your trip. It's often three, four, five different shows depending on how long your cruise is. And, uh, I mean, full sets, full effects, singing, pyrotechnics. It's, uh, It's awesome. And so I got to talk to John about that. That has always fascinated me. And he also directed the show Elmo the Musical for Sesame Place Theme Park. And uh, as you know, I'm a big theme park person. And so we talked not only about Sesame Place, but John's also a big Disney Parks fan. So uh, at the end of the interview, of course, we had our obligatory Disney Parks chat, which I have with several guests, right? Ginger Z and I had that and you know, got to talk about that and uh, talk to Imagineers on this show. So if you've been listening for a while, you know that's my world. I got to say one other thing. I didn't realize this when I booked this show, but today, September 24th, is actually Jim Henson's birthday. So it's just kind of one more weird (laughs) little thing of, uh, you know, talking to John and and you'll hear just his love and reverence for Jim Henson. They never met, but uh, he is one of the people that is very much keeping that legacy alive and figuring out how to keep it going for the next generation, which is awesome and admirable so yeah i i was uh I was really excited for this talk uh, I could have gone on for you know three hours with John, but <laughs> kept it brief for his sake for your sake, for everyone's sake all right here it is my conversation with John tartaglia are you uh are you out in los Angeles I am so i'm I'm on west coast time <laughs> okay how's uh how's the air and the the fires and everything you doing all right out there
1: uh, yeah, it was pretty nuts for the first couple of days of it, honestly. And and uh, I actually was in the car driving back from uh coming from Utah, actually, uh-huh. and saw so much of it from the distance, and wow. it was just kind of surreal. And you know, seeing the sun through a cloud of fire like that—it's just I don't know—it was really surreal. But it's better now; it's it's a little, it's clearer now, thank goodness. But yeah. it's just you know, it's so awful if it has to happen at all.
0: It's crazy. I'm I'm in Boston, and like you know, I, I've been seeing the reports like out of San Francisco and out of Oregon and stuff. But we have friends in Seattle that like we reached out to and they're like, oh, yeah, no, it's yeah. bad here. And like L.A. is bad. I just like what's going on?
1: It's weird. There's still like this little kind of smoky hanging that's happening. But I just I feel bad for all the people who lost their homes. Oh, it's yeah. so awful. Yeah. But
0: um, well, it, it just feels like kind of one crisis after another. <laughs> with the, I know, you know, the, the quarantine and all. How has uh, how have, has this period, I guess, the last whatever, six, seven months been treating you?
1: Well, you know, I feel I feel guilty in saying this, but I feel so blessed because I feel like, you know, we've been we've been I've been really busy because yeah. so much of the work, so much of the work I've been able to do has been virtual. And, you know, I, I've always kind of had like a dual life of of being a live theater You know, person uh, performing and then moving into directing for theater, and then also my television and film work, and and of course the live theater side is just there's nothing, and 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 so that part of of life has been very um, depleted. And then the television and film side, luckily, just the way that things worked out with all my work with the Japanse company, and otherwise, it's been a lot of. Stuff I could do at home, you know, writing and and, and things like that that we can do virtually. So, you know, thank goodness for the advent of the internet. I don't know how any of us would be doing anything right now for that. Yeah. But but so so I've been I've been lucky to be busy.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I talked to Hallie a few a uh, few months ago. I guess it was back in July now, maybe, something like that. Uh, and we had talked a little bit about uh, sort of the Fraggle Rock, uh, Rock On uh, videos that you guys had done, uh, which was yeah. kind of early on in all this. I'm, I'm curious sort of from your side, because you're not only, you know, producing the series, but also um, one of the performers. <laughs> like, how was that yeah. just sort of... You know, having to having to puppeteer from home and, you know, be your own cameraman and, you know, just sort of analyze your performance and all that. It was it was all shot with iPhones, right?
1: It was. It was all shot on iPhone 11s. Wow. And, you know, it was funny because I think it, the way it all laid out was so kind of meant to be, I think, because the fact that we had just shut down like two weeks before and. I happen to have the Fraggles. I brought the Fraggle puppets home with me because they were being stored in my office at work. And uh-huh. I just was like, I can't leave these puppets <laughs> like at the office. There's something that just, doesn't feel right about that. Right. Knew, you know, looking back, it's good because I brought them with me. But uh, And then, you know, we got the call from Apple to make these shorts. And it was, I don't know, there was something kind of, it was such a good distraction, I guess, is the way to put it at first. Because it was like this is awful. What's happening. We're all shut down. We don't know what's going on, how long this is going to be, but we have something to focus on and making these shorts. And we were so lucky to uh, just be able to kind of, it, well, I guess I should say it's amazing what you can do yeah. when all of a sudden you're given the opportunity to create. And yeah, it was a little bit like it felt to me as a puppeteer, you know, when you're, when you're a young puppeteer, when you're a kid, I started when I was a kid, you know, you're you are kind of doing it all yourself, right? Because you're in you're building your own puppet stages and you're building your own puppets and then you're putting up your lights to make your lighting and then you're yeah. recording your own soundtracks and writing <laughs> your own script. And you kind of, you know, I've always said that puppeteering is like a is like a basement hobby, like you're in your basement making things and putting on puppet shows and stuff like that. So all of a sudden, like we were all in our homes finding you know, the corner of our bedrooms or our offices or our kitchens or whatever we needed to use and all of a sudden kind of going back to that time where you had to do it all yourself. And, you know, you you, you certainly not that you ever take for granted what people do on a set, but my goodness, there were so many times where we were like, Oh, I wish I had a lighting designer in here right, right now to figure out how to use my desk lamp and my <laughs> two lamps to make this look good. But yeah, it was just a little bit like everyone roll up your sleeves and figure out how to make this happen. Yeah. You know, and and that's what we did.
0: What was the, like, interacting with the other performers? Because I know, you know, each Fraggle is sort of in their own. It, it's almost like a like a Fraggle Zoom call <laughs> that's taking place. They're all sort of in their own world. But, like, yeah. you know, just playing off of each other, like, what, did you just sort of have to do your own piece in a vacuum? Or were you, were you able to kind of, you know, go off what the other performers were doing as well?
1: Well, it was a combo of, of situations. I mean, I think we all have known each other for years all, yeah. the, all the performers but some of us haven't worked together before so you know dave and karen who perform uh, uh goober and traveling Matt and red Fraggle, they were on the original series and and i've gotten to work with them over the years you know we've all kinda, kind of gotten to work on little things but we've never done the fraggles together this is right. the first time the five fraggles were back together and we had uh, myself who's now playing gobo this was my first time doing a series as gobo Frankie Cordero who played Wembley this is his first time doing Wembley ever wow. so there was a lot there yeah there's a lot of like first time happening so and usually you get to be in a room together and right. you get to, you get rehearsal time and you get to figure out your beats and your rhythms and you feel it on set and in this case we had to do it all over zoom right so so there was that piece of it but what was kind of amazing is that we had a wonderful director named Jason Tavillier who really kind of gave us the, the feel of what we were going for and we would have these like Uh, virtual production meetings where we'd read through the script and figure out timings and figure out, you know, what like Karen as Red would say, well, I'm going to grab, you know, Red's arms like this and do this to make it look like she's weightlifting. And we'd actually get to see it happen. And then Jason would say, well, what if you did this? What if you did that? So there was this, I don't know, it was kind of odd to be separated. And yet we felt very much together while we were creating it. Um, And then we'd go off after that call and shoot on our own and then send in the footage. So it really was, kind of, it was, it was just unlike anything else I've ever experienced. And, and I think that the, the miracle is that when you watch it, it does feel like we're almost doing it all together. Live. Sure. Yeah. So I think that we're really lucky that we had we had an amazing editor and, and luckily had a lot of rehearsal and, you know, it just worked out that way. But, I don't know. It was in some some ways it was it was very lonely because we're we're, we're puppeteering is such a collaborative art form and right. to be separated like that was was definitely unique.
0: Yeah, is a Fraggle usually two performers like for hands and stuff?
1: It depends so, on what they're doing. I mean, I mean, if if they're just kind of generally just doing dialogue, then it's usually one person. Okay. But. Um, When they're doing things like, like Moki, for example, who does yoga in this version of it, it's really hard to do that on your own. And so we actually depended on our, you know, husbands and wives and boyfriends and best (laughs) friends and whoever we were quarantining with, we kind of depended on them to, to very quickly learn how to hold a rod a certain way or how to, you know, in my case, my boyfriend was amazing. And like, you know, I, I was puppeteering for Wembley because oh. I had the puppeteer and he needed to balance a pickle on his nose. And so my, my boyfriend had to learn how to like marionette a pickle <laughs> off camera. And he's, he's not like a puppeteer, these- right? He's not a puppeteer. And he learned <laughs> so much about it very quickly. And, but it, yeah, so so in that case, it was it was it, it, you know it was very difficult to do these sometimes challenging things that you would have a second or third puppeteer right. do and learning how to do it with, with whoever you were quarantining with. So yeah, That's it was awesome. it was a it was a, a trial by error kind of thing, but we but we figured it out.
0: Yeah, and I, I can only imagine too, like these are established characters already too. So like for this being your first time, or you know for some of you guys the first time performing them, like it's not like it's a new character that you can sort of you know, have some latitude with, like you're trying to nail an established performance, right?
1: Yeah. Yes, exactly. And I think, I think there was so much um, expectation because the Fraggles, you know, they've done an occasional appearance here or there since the original series not there, but really this was the first time there was truly true, uh, uh, long form content that was, that was being created. And so, You know, and Fraggle's have uh, you know a a really dedicated fan base. I'm one of the biggest fans of Fraggle Rock in the world, and and the fans for Fraggle Rock are like, you know, they 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 know it. They know it really well. So there was a there was also a pressure of that to to your point that there was a pressure of delivering the best possible interpretation of them with the confines of we couldn't be on a set, we couldn't be you know with the proper. Artists that usually make the frackles look so good, so yeah. so yeah, there was definitely an expectation <laughs> level too that we're like, oh man, right. But I gotta say, like being able to film on iPhone 11, I mean, you would you really wouldn't know that was shot on an iPhone. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's incredible how beautiful that footage looks, considering so and and having blue screens and everything else that we were able to use to make them. Make them look pretty good, but uh, but yeah, it was definitely we definitely felt that weight of like, all right, new fragile content is better than be good. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, and you've you're working on the series now too, right? Like that, there, there's going to be we a full are, series coming to Apple TV Plus. Where it's sort of where are you in the uh, in the pipeline there, I guess.
1: We are we're, we're writing scripts as we speak, and we're we're gearing up for pre production, and and we'll hopefully be going into a studio sooner than later. And it's it's really cool. I mean, I mean for me. It's the most surreal experience in the world. Be- growing up, wanting to be a puppeteer because of Fraggle Rock and knowing the original series so well and looking to it as kind of like the gold standard of what a a, a Henson series should be. So yeah. it's so emotional and surreal and exciting. And you know, it's now it's talking about okay, when we're all together, dot dot dot, we'll be able to do this, this and this and. Right. You know, and now we can kind of take what we learned from the shorts, like what people respond to and, um, you know, how, how they love the reinterpretation of the music and and taking all that and being able to put it into a full length series. It's just
0: it's so cool. That's awesome. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious, like, you know, just for me, puppeteering is such a such a specific thing to get into and especially like, you know, you got into it at a very early age. Like, you know, you mentioned sort of the influence the Frag of Rock had on you, but like, what talk to me, I guess, about, you know, growing up and what was it that that led you into puppeteering?
1: I think it's a combination of things. I mean, I, I grew up in a showbiz family. So the earliest memories I have are being backstage in a theater or, or watching theater or listening to cast recordings or, like, I was always around that. And yeah. I loved I loved making my family laugh by performing. I always loved to sing. My mom is a singer, and I was always listening to her sing, and I wanted to sing like her. So I feel like being, in some way, a performer was always just, like, in the cards. Yeah, <laughs> like I right. feel like, you know, I couldn't really avoid that in a good way. And then I, re- I really remember... I didn't really play with puppets as a kid, you know. It not, I didn't have like a puppet that I played with. It became something that clicked for me. I really remember very distinctly watching Fraggle Rock for the first time on HBO yeah. and just being like, "Oh my God, that's what I want to do!" Right. It was just this like surreal, instinctual moment, and I became obsessed with how do you make puppets? How do they move? The people behind them it was like i remember the connection between like watching a show and then my mom got me the album the fraggle rock album and looking on the back and it was like jerry nelson as gobo fraggle and pa gorg and Catherine mullen as Moki fraggle i was like oh, there are people that do this right like and it just clicked for me and ever since that moment it was like this need to want to do it And i think i really think what it was was Puppetry allows you to be anything and anyone, Hmm. and you don't. You're not limited by how old you are. You're not limited by, you know, if you're a male or female. You're not limited by anything. It's like you have a you have a puppet on your hand. You go away and you get to be whatever that puppet is. So I could play a chicken or an old lady or a king or. a a piece of food. I mean, it's like, it's a mate. There's a limitless amount of things you can be. And I loved doing voices and it all just felt like a way to express myself in that way. Yeah. So I think that's what it was.
0: Were you like, at what age did you start like building puppets and actually like, you know, trying out puppetry?
1: I think I was about seven. Wow. Um, Yeah. My parents had gotten divorced and I remember, like the first time I saw Frag Rock was on a trip, like a road trip with my mom. It was uh-huh. just me and her on a road trip. And we like checked into some hotel and the big deal was that they had free HBO. Right. <laughs> that was the thing HBO. back then. Yeah, that was the thing. Remember that? That was the big thing. And so we, I remember watching Frag Rock the first time from that. And then I think like when we got home from that trip, I started taking socks and turning them into puppets. And my mom would drive me to the fabric store and I'd get, you know, foam chunks of foam rubber and cut it up and, it was pretty much like from there on. It was like instantaneous, uh, you know, uh, interest or, or maybe obsession. I guess you could say. But it was just, it was like I knew that that's what I wanted to make and do. And, and my mom still has some of those first puppets, and they're pretty horrifying. <laughs> but but you know, it, it, through my seven-year-old lens, I was like, these are gorgeous. Yeah. But of course, they were they were right. pretty, they were pretty bad.
0: Um, did did Sesame or or like the regular Muppets? Did they have the same resonance for you, or was it specifically Fraggle Rock always?
1: Well, Fry Rock was like the gateway. It was like, that was the the show. And then from there, it was, you know, I'd grown up watching Sesame Street. And so I'm sure, you know, subliminally in the back of my mind, I loved those puppets too. I just didn't realize that they were, maybe I didn't realize they were puppets because I watched it so young. But uh, from there it was like, yeah, then I became obsessed watching the original Muppet show and all the Muppet movies and all the behind the scenes Muppet stuff and Labyrinth and Dark Crystal and Sesame Street and anything I could get my hands on that Jim Henson worked on. And I think at the same time I became, I fell in love with puppetry. I really looked to Jim Henson as my hero. And it was like, he was like the one I looked to as like, I want to be like him. I want to do what he did. I want to use my imagination and my abilities to create stuff that is positive and, you know, makes the world a better place. And so I think, you know, it was in tandem that my love for puppetry happened My my severe interest in Jim Henson kind of happened at the same time. Totally.
0: I remember, like, as a kid, I'm, I'm a little younger than you. I was born in '84, and, like, um, oh, okay. we had, like, the VHS tape that I, we must have recorded it off air of, like, the Muppet Family Christmas. Where I don't know if you, do oh, you remember that special. Yeah. It was like, like the best special ever. Yeah. Cause it starts with the Muppets, <laughs> and then, like, halfway through, the Sesame Gang comes in, and then, like, the, you know, uh, Kermit and Robin go down to Fraggle Rock, and, like, it was just kind of mind bending as a kid. Like, as you say, sort of connecting those dots and being like, "Oh, it's all the sa- it's the same people and it's the, it's same, the same kind same of people. medium and like, you know, just never yeah. there. There's a moment in that where like Animal and Cookie Monster meet for the first time and <laughs> yes. they just instantly connect and I'm like, "Oh yeah," no, but like just watching that, you know, on loop as a kid and just being like, "Oh, this is so cool." <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, and also, you know. Th- 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 it's so hard for anyone of this era to imagine but like you know the, the days before the internet right where where things could be you know uploaded and you could watch anything but also have the kind of organ the fan organization that that, that exists online now if right. that makes any sense like no, totally. you yeah. know what i mean where there's someone who puts all that together and says this is all a Japan. it was just like everything was kind of found by chance back then right um, or maybe at a library if you were lucky. I mean, my, my blockbuster video knew me so well because I'd walk in there and just like go right to like the Muppet section, yeah, right. right. but like, but like, but uh, yeah, but that special. is a great, yeah, it's a great example. Like it, it definitely was a, a good, a good, um, it kind of encapsulated that world that you yeah, totally. created.
0: Totally. Um, and so like, I'm really intrigued because one of your first jobs was working on Sesame street, right? You were like 16, yeah. is that right?
1: That's right. I was 16.
0: Yeah. How did that come into being?
1: Well, I... So I had, a, I had a bunch of really, not a bunch, I, I had a couple of, of really amazing close calls on almost meeting Jim Henson uh-huh. uh, as a kid. I wrote a lot of fan letters. I really wrote to him and basically said like, you know, I think at the the, the earliest age I, I wrote to him, I was like eight or nine. I basically was like, I want to work for you when I'm older. I know what I want to do. I wanna, I knew I knew enough as a kid to know that you had to graduate high school and then move to New York. Like I know I had to do that much. <laughs> so I, I would say that in my letters. Like when I turn 18, I want to move to New York city and become a puppeteer for the Muppets and I wrote him a bunch of times a couple of amazing almost chances fell through I didn't quite get there and then he passes away and I'm devastated and so when I'm about 13 or 14 I wrote a letter to Kevin Clash who's the original Elmo performer on Sesame Street I didn't know that he was the puppet captain for Sesame Street at the time oh wow and yeah I wrote him a letter and was like I'm the biggest handsome fan the biggest Muppet fan and it turns out he was you know assisting jim and working the gym and jim had somehow mentioned my name to him somehow really? my name yes was wow. familiar and so the secretary at the company when they got my letter put two and two together and long story short i find myself at like 14 years old visiting the set of sesame street with my family wow. and getting a chance to meet all my heroes yeah. and watch them tape and i started trying out i started basically auditioning at 14 and sending in videos of my puppetry of my puppetry and they used to have these things called workshops where you would go they were really like auditions but yeah. really they, they i mean you would go for like three days and over a series of three days let's say there's like 50 wannabe puppeteers who are coming in there and it would get whittled down over three days to like seven or eight, maybe. Yeah. And I did two of those in when I was in high school, and I always got kept to the very end. So I was so lucky. I mean, I was so lucky. And what I was able to do, I think, because my family comes from performance and because I, I loved to dance, too, is I had really good rhythm. Yeah. And so I really understood the manipulation side of puppetry, you know, because puppetry is like one part voices, one part character, one part manipulation. So, so the manipulation part I, I was really good at uh, at a young age. And that was really useful for being like a background puppeteer and for doing big group scenes, which is where they needed a lot of extra puppeteers. Right. So that's how I kind of got in the door at 16. And yeah, I started at 16 and then I would go up on, you know, school holidays and work in New York city, or I would, you know, if they were doing a special, I'd go up and do that. And then when I was 18, I graduated high school and I planned to go to college. I had a full in-state scholarship to a college and was two weeks away from going. And I got a call from the head of casting for Sesame Street who basically said, well, we want to bring you in for a bunch of dates. And she like listed them out. And it was like, so, it was so many days away that I yeah. would have had to miss from college. Right. And so my mom and I and my stepfather, we had a talk and they were like, You dreamt about this for for your whole life and this is the opportunity. So you can always go to college later, but you may not get this opportunity again. And so wow. a few days later we were in New York City and found an apartment and I moved to New York City to eighteen by myself. Wow. And all by myself, <laughs> living in a little <laughs> studio apartment in New York City. I mean, looking back now, it's it's crazy. Yeah. But at the time at the time it was like I just wanted to do it. Right. But yeah. And that first season of Sesame Street was like my college. It was like, you know, I learned I was an a 18-year-old kid living in New York City by himself, paying bills, learning what a check is, learning what rent is, learning what what a gas bill is, right? And and literally on the train to Sesame Street every day. And luckily, everyone there looked out for me. But but yeah, that's how I got there. So that's it's a very awesome. long way to tell you that story. But it was it was such a an amazing. Um, example of, I think if you dream something and you believe in it enough, it can can happen.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, the foresight of your parents too. And I guess, you know, your mom coming from entertainment, probably, you know, she understood sort of the value of that, but I could imagine with a lot of parents, you know, saying, Hey, I have this chance to go work over here. And they'd say, well, you're supposed to go to school, like get your degree first and then see where it takes you. But like sort of understanding that, you know, these opportunities in this business are kind of finite. And if you don't capitalize on it, it's, you know, it's not going to be there in four years.
1: Yeah. And I really did get in kind of at the perfect time at Sesame Street. It was if I had waited four years, I don't know what would have happened. Like it was the perfect time to be there because they needed more people. And it was a big time for the show. And yeah, I mean, my mom, the the memory that that I have is my poor mom. You know, she she was worried, of course, and petrified. They were also moving away. They were moving to Florida at the time. Oh, we wow. had been living in Pennsylvania, but they were moving to Florida, so she was going to be even further away from me than she would have been before. And I remember, literally, at eighteen year olds, eighteen, having to be like, "Okay, mom, thank you for helping me. me, me you know, you will me moved in." everything's set, but you need to leave now. <laughs> she yeah. like, didn't yeah. want to leave the apartment. And I was like, Mom, you have to go. You have to leave. And now we look back and we laugh. But right. she's like, oh, no, I was petrified. I put on a brave face, but I was petrified.
0: Wow, that's so awesome. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm like, the the behind-the-scenes stuff that I've seen of Sesame Street, I'm really intrigued by, it. just because at least like the main street set it's not really built with puppeteering in mind, it seems. Like, I've seen some of the, you know, some Henson project, like the Dark Crystal stuff that just happened. You know, they're sort of building platforms so that the puppeteers can kind of stand and the camera's elevated. But on Sesame, like, you're on the ground most of the time, right?
1: Yeah, it's funny. Sesame Street, you know, what what happened was is that I think they thought that... The original idea for Sesame Street, I think, was that the only puppets you would really see on the street itself were Big Bird and Oscar. Mm. So if you watch those first few episodes of the show from you know '69, you would see Big Bird and you see Oscar in his can, and that was it. Yeah. And then the other Muppets were always kind of in in what we call inserts, like their own little segments. Yeah. And so those we would those they would have performed standing up, like like we do with all these other productions. So they they really did. You're right. Like they they built the Sesame Street the street set itself on the ground to really service the humans the real people quote unquote um, and so all of a sudden, as the years went on, it was like, oh no, we, you know, you want to see Cookie Monster on the street. And you want to see Elmo and you want to see these other characters. So it's one of the only shows where the main set, the street set isn't built up and yeah. we are rolling around on these essentially like mechanic stollies. We're rolling okay. around to be, to be the right height. So you get a really good ab workout, a really good glutes <laughs> workout <Right. laughs> doing that. But then other shows, yeah, like Fraggle Rock and The Muppet Show and, and, uh, and Dark Crystal and, they're all built up. Yeah. And um, so it's definitely, you know, it, sometimes you're in really awkward positions when there's a big group of puppets right. having to be in one shot when you have a bunch of, you know, six foot <laughs> adults trying to fit their bodies in the right position to get these puppets yeah. in the same shot together. Or
0: there's kids sometimes too, right? I mean, there's like six and seven yeah. year old kids, so they're not even as tall as an adult. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. you've really got to be crazy. Down.
1: You have to really, yeah, and it's it's funny, You, you like we don't really think about that until so someone like yourself points out you're like, oh yeah, like we are kind of it, it is not the way we usually do it. Yeah. But, you know, it's you just get used to it. But yeah, I definitely perfected like the crab walk with right. those mechanical dollies <laughs> pulling myself <laughs> along.
0: That's awesome. Um I I've always wondered too, just like with, with any puppeteering, like there's often as we talked about two performers, you know, like how mm-hmm. does just getting the rhythm right, I guess, of like making it look like one unified creature when there's two different yeah. people like is it is it rehearsal is it just like trying stuff and, and doing multiple takes like how do you how do you nail that when you're when it's two different people you know performing one character
1: it's kind of all of that so when we assist them one or you know usually we perform what's called the right hand so you know the main puppeteer is doing they have their their dominant, usually right hand inside the puppet's mouth yep. and they're doing the voice. And then their other hand, their left hand is usually doing the left hand of the puppeteer, of the puppet. And then, so what we do is called the right hand, right? To complete it. And like most of those puppets, like Ernie or Cookie Monster or Oscar, they have what's called live hands where their hands can pick props up and stuff like that. Yep. I think right-handing is the hardest job Harder than performing a character, yeah. hands down, because when you're performing your own character, you call the shots, you do what you want to do, what your impulses take you. When you're a right hand, you have to follow. Right. And and it's really tough. And so to answer your question, like sometimes it happens just by necessity. You get assigned to somebody. Um, and a lot of times it, it comes from from friendships, right? So Marty Robinson, who performs Tele Monster on Sesame Street, his right hand for all this time. I can't even remember how many years Telly's been I think, you know, 30 years has been his friend Pam Arciero, who's an amazing puppeteer. And the two of them work together and they're such good friends. They've worked together for so long that they're so in sync yeah. and they know each other's, you know, Pam knows Marty's rhythms so well that it's rare that they have to really talk through a whole lot. Hmm. And if it's written in a script, Telly holds the, you know, hairdryer or what have you. They're so, they have such an unspoken understanding of how they're going to do it that it's rare that they even have to discuss how they're going to work it. And that comes with time. You just learn people's rhythms and instincts, but it's hard when you assist somebody and you don't really know them yet. And so, you know, it's, it's intimidating. One of my first jobs was right-handing for a couple, couple performers and it's scary because you can also completely blow a tape and mess a shot up if you don't do it right. Right. Um, and, and it's, it's a little bit trial by fire. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I remember one of the first things I did on Sesame Street was I right-handed for Frank Oz, who, who of course is the sure. legendary muppeteer yeah. that that, that, you, that originated Cookie Monster. And I remember that they said to me, they said, "Look, if if," <laughs> and I laugh about it now because I I you know I was so scared to do this, but like Frank is the best but I was so intimidated to assist Frank Oz. He was not right. one of my heroes. And uh, they said, you know, if Frank grabs your hand as Cookie Monster, if he uses his Cookie Monster hand to grab your hand, that's a sign you're doing too much.
2: Hmm.
1: And that's what they told me. And so, of course, within 10 seconds of assisting him, <laughs> he grabbed my hand. Right. Turns out that was just what he liked to do. They had told me that to kind of <laughs> haze me. They told me that to like torture me. And yeah. I was, but of course, like in the moment, I was like, oh, oh my, my God, God, he hates me. I'm the worst. Right. But but you know that wasn't it at all. But yeah, but you, you just you just you just kind of learn people's people's rhythms, and you tend to get assigned to the same person. But it is the hardest job, I yeah. think, above any other job. It's it's tough.
0: Well, the, with cookie too, the, the the right hand of cookie, you're actually like you're the one eating, quote unquote, right? Like you're you're kind of Oftentimes, crumbling up there, yeah, the, you're yeah like crunching crumbling. the cookies, <laughs> and
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it's I know this sounds weird, but after a while, when you do it long enough, you you actually just focus on the character and you just kind of instinctually follow.
2: Yeah,
1: Cause I think it's, I think it is like you're letting someone else, drive the scene you know by speaking for the character that you're assisting and you just kind of feel it right you know but but it's true yeah that was always nerve-wracking too with those cookies i was like if i don't crunch this cookie right (laughs) now i am in big trouble which by the way is like the most hilarious job pressure in the world we all have to worry about that
0: (laughs) gotta make sure the cookies crumble correctly these cookies don't
1: crumble i am fired yeah exactly
0: so beyond like uh, puppeteering well you know, you've done a lot of Broadway work and you you mentioned some of that, but one of your first big roles was on Avenue Q. So I guess there is a, there is a puppeteering connection there, but you know, in in any of these sort of, whether it's with Avenue Q where you're not hidden as the puppeteer, you know, you're, you're being seen on stage next to your puppet or, you know, playing Lumiere or something like that in, in Beauty and the Beast, like, what's the difference I guess for you between sort of being able to hide as a character and having to have your face front and center as a character?
1: That's a great question. I, mean, I think I think it was. I'm one of the weirdo puppeteers that really likes being on stages myself, as yeah. well as puppeteering. I think a lot of people go into puppetry to hide, right. um, because they have the wants to perform, but they don't want to be seen as themselves. So they put a puppet on to kind of express themselves in some way, but then don't want to necessarily be seen as for who they are. Right. And I'm one of those weirdos who's a big old ham and <laughs> <laughs> loves being on stage. So it was actually really interesting to do Avenue Q because. It was the first time we were doing this television version of puppetry where we're not trying to, like, hi, you know, we're not ventriloquists, so right. we're not hiding our lips moving. And we're not doing something like uh, Audrey 2 and Little Shop of Horrors where the puppet itself is right. the character. Yeah, you don't we were see kind the of puppeteers. Sharing. It's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so we were kind of sharing. And so it was really interesting to figure out with our director, Jason Moore, like, how to almost learn, okay, when am I giving 50-50? When's the puppet 50%? When am I 50%? And then when is the puppet 70% and I'm 30% or when am I having to make up for what the puppet can't do? So I have to be 70, the puppet's 30. Yeah. So you almost said it was a very fine balancing act. And a lot of that's in the way the show's directed and the way the lighting design works for the show. That was really interesting to figure out like how much, like, how much can I do that? I don't upstage the puppet, but at the same time we're not trying to hide the puppeteer. Right. So like, I don't want to have like a, you know, a dead face the whole time. You want to show <laughs> right. that you're, that you're emoting. Yeah. Um, so that was, you know, one thing. And then I think when you're doing something like like Lumiere, where I'm really performing as myself as an actor, but I'm using elements that you could argue were puppeteered, like, yep. you know, his candelabra arms and stuff like that. Then it was just kind of like embodying it fully as an actor. But I think with Avenue Q, was, it was really, uh, you know, I, the one distinct moment I could think of is in um, the song Fantasies Come True, where I did Rod and he's like laying in bed and he's thinking about Nikki and the spotlight's really close. If you look at the the design of that scene, I'm visible, but the spotlight, the actual light is on only the puppet for yeah. the first part of it. So you really focus on the puppet. And then as he starts getting more and more emotional and more lost in his dreams, they widen the spotlight out to mm. include me and the, the puppeteer. And so I think it gave you the audience, the direction focus on the puppet but ah but now look at the performer to understand exactly what he's really thinking and feeling
2: right
1: so it, so i think it's like really i don't know it was, it was kind of an interesting exploration and i remember a couple moments where jason will come up and be like so at this moment like you need to pull back like you're you the actor are really expressive, but it's really, you've got to keep the puppet more the focus here hmm. or the opposite. Or he'd say something like, I need to see it in your face. you got to ham this moment up a little bit more. <laughs> so, so it was kind of learning like how to basically tell the story the best way using this new, like, I guess you could say like double-headed version, right? right? Like two heads per, per character. <laughs>
0: That's uh, that's awesome. Uh, I, I wonder, too, like, uh, you started making the shift over to, like, directing and producing and things, but sort mm-hmm. of always staying in the children's programming realm. Uh, what is it mm-hmm. about children's programming that sort of speaks to you or that, you know, why do you like using that as a medium?
1: You know, I feel like, and I think this came from being such a fan of Jim Henson growing up, I think what I admired about him was he certainly did a lot of work for adults and for for an older audience, but there was always a sense of goodness that, oh, that that like an undercurrent of goodness sure. that rode throughout all of his productions. So even Labyrinth, which of course is much more adult than like, you know, Sesame Street was or Fogger Rock. There, there was always the sense of goodness wins and making a difference and being responsible and being a good member of your community. I mean, I'm grabbing at things here, but, but there was always just that sense of goodness, I guess, or optimism. And so I think for me, like when I had the opportunity to choose what I wanted to do. Like Avenue Q opened a lot of doors for me and gave me the opportunity to kind of, you know, get to do a lot of projects I wouldn't have gotten to do otherwise. And I felt kind of felt like I wanted to carry that on, you know, because I feel so lucky. I grew up, you know, in a very loving, positive family. Yes. You know, my parents got divorced and that was obviously not a good thing, but they, I still was, I was a loved, supported kid whose dreams were supported and, um, I had a good childhood, and I feel like the work that I observed as a kid, you know, through Jim Henson and Disney and everywhere everywhere else that I loved, all the different worlds that I loved, really shaped me into the person I am as far as my outlook on life and my positivity, and I'm annoyingly optimistic sometimes, <laughs> and, and environmental and things like that. So I think I wanted to kind of continue that on. I wanted to find a way to give back and, and create that, because... I remember doing Avenue Q and getting nominated for a Tony award and coming out to Los Angeles for the first time. And it was like, you know, auditioning for sitcoms. And I loved that, but I don't know, I wanted to, to do something that would make a difference. Yeah. And, and that would, that would somehow, maybe if I'm so lucky to get the opportunity to write, to create for kids, which I have been able to do, like, encourage that next generation to do the responsible thing or encourage that next generation to treat each other kindly and to realize the environment's important and all those things that we should be teaching our kids. So Yeah. yeah, I think it was just that I felt this kind of responsibility, I guess, to use a platform that I was given unexpectedly to hopefully make a positive difference. And I still love, you know, creating things that you know, are for a, a wide variety of audiences. That's why working on Rock now is so surreal because it's to me the ultimate show that kids can watch, but ultimately it's really for families. Right. It's for any age group to watch. So, so I've always loved that, and I think because that was that—that's some of the best memories I have of my childhood are my mom and my dad and my sisters and I sitting around watching the same movie or the same TV show. Right. So I think I wanted to keep that. Yeah, you know.
0: it, it, it's great when though when. They can kind of appeal. You know, I'm a parent now. I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old. And, like, my daughter went through a phase where she just wanted to watch the 2011 Muppets movie, like the Jason Siegel one, <laughs> like, yeah. on loop forever. And we were totally fine with it. We're like, you know what? Like, we can enjoy it. Like, it wasn't, you know, Teletubbies or Barney or, like, something that's really geared towards kids. It was something that had kid appeal but that also, like just didn't annoy us and yeah you know, and you know it, what nice
1: that that's the greatest thing like i mean some i remember a funny story i tell all the time about uh Frivel rock which was i remember my dad and my stepmother i was spending the summer with them it was really the first year of my obsession of the sh- with the show yeah and so i guess i was i was you know seven or eight or wh- however old i was and i remember watching it in the living room and my dad came in and sat down and I'm sure he was like expected to sit down for a couple minutes and he was hooked. He was yeah. like really like watching the show. And at one point he like looked at, looked at my stepfather was like, damn, this is really good. <laughs> like he really, he really got into it. And it was never like if, if, you know, oftentimes as I'm sure you have in your household, like the kids were on the TV. Right. And so, you know, whenever I, I got to choose what we were going to watch and oftentimes, if not more often than not, it was Fraggle Rock. There was never a complaint. They were like, okay. Yep. And they really, it, that, I, that really stuck with me, that memory of like, of, of a parent wanting to engage with their kid. And I think there's something powerful about that. Like, you know, that, that, that co-viewing time is really, is really important. I think in a kid's life, you know, feeling like something that's important to them is important to their parents mm. too. And, um, yeah, so but so, so to your point though, like I remember when I did Johnny and the Sprites on Disney Channel, one of yeah. my kind of, you know, one of my first day um uh requests that everyone working on the show was we're gonna make a show that parents can watch with their kids and not tear their hair out. Yeah. You know, right. <laughs> because because I you know, I feel like that's that's uh that's a needed thing when you're a parent, is that you could put that CD on or that television or that DVD on and not be like, Oh god, here we go this again. again right? you know? <laughs> yeah, no, totally.
0: It's it's huge. And I, I appreciate you doing that. Um I'm I'm really curious uh about some other sort of different projects that you've taken on that that are intriguing yeah. to me. Um one is uh sort of the cruise ship show uh genre. Mm-hmm. You've done some stuff for Carnival and for Princess Cruise Lines. Um I have done Disney Cruises before and I know like one of yeah. the things that I love just sitting in the audience is like I I just sort of realizing that they have the limitation of this stage And sort of the different physical effects that are built into it. You know, there's a lift in the center of the stage. And there's only so many backgrounds you can put in different projectors. And, like, sort of seeing different shows throughout the, you know, four or five days you're on the ship that, like, how are they going to use that bag of tricks tonight? Like, when you're you're conceiving a show, are you are you thinking about those limitations or, or like, do you sort of start with that, that bag of tricks and say, okay, I know that I can, you know, there's a flying rig so I can have a character fly if I want them to, or, you know, just whatever mm-hmm. it is, both, both the, the pluses and the minuses, I guess, of being confined to a small cruise ship stage.
1: Well, it's funny. Cause I, I really, I think growing up a backstage kid, I love the theatricality of sure. effects and, and scenery and props and, and, and lifts and effects. And so, Working on a cruise ship for me was like, you know, being like (laughs) given the keys to like the magical box of wonders a little bit. Actually, it has a lot to, for me anyway. It had a lot to do with how the shows I've gotten to do were created because, you know, to have that first meeting where they say, "Well, you have two elevators and you have a 50-foot LED screen and you have you can do smoke, you can do bubbles, you can do snow, we can do pyrotechnics," you know, it just kind of opens the door of like how you can tell your story. Right. And to, to your point, like I, I am amazed by the thought that goes into we're going to fit four. Broadway size shows, right. four of them sometimes into this theater space, and it has to fold away and and collapse down and and be stored because we're on a cruise ship. Right. <laughs> There's like only so much room. Yeah. Um. So so for me it was yeah it was like a big box of tricks. I mean the first the first big big show I did was for Princess Cruises called The Secret Silk, and the the Jimenez company actually built the puppets for it and it was the coolest thing having that first meeting and listening to the head of production be like, yeah, we can use the elevators. We can use the lifts. We can use this. We can use, I mean, it was just so exciting to go, okay, well, that's how I'm going to make the the crane appear. And that's how I'm going to, you know, we're going to do this, this uh, disappearing effect using the pyro. And it's just, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's exciting. And it's, it's amazing when you stop and think about the fact that like, and I'm sure you've had this experience on a cruise ship where, you know, you're watching a show like that with pyro with everything else. And you're like, Oh yeah, I'm floating in the middle of the ocean. Right, <laughs> like 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 we're doing this in the middle of the ocean. Yeah, That's what's happening? Yeah, but yeah, it's it's really um, Stephen Schwartz, who's the one who brought me into Princess Cruises. He always, you know, when people say, "Well, why did you, you know, you have written Wicked, you've done all these amazing things, like, why did you want to do shows on cruise ships?" and he said, "Because it's the it's true. It's like they're doing so much more technically on those stages, you know, in front of a captive audience. They're doing all this." more than a lot of Broadway theaters can do. Right. You know, the theater where Avenue Q played, uh, it's a wonderful theater called the Golden Theater, but they didn't have the technical capabilities on that stage that these cruise ships have. So it's true. They can actually, these ships can sometimes do things that a lot of Broadway stages can't do. So it's really cool if you think about it from that, you know, from that point of view.
0: Yeah. Do, Do you have to, like, the other piece, I guess, that I've always sort of wondered about is just like, you know, the, the casting between the multiple shows, like there will be mm. a show on Monday where there's a father character. And so they sort of have to cast like an older, you know, chubbier guy for that role. And then you see that same guy in Tuesday's show. That's, you know, this other like they figure out how to use the physicality and sort of the different genders or ethnicities or, you know, whatever um, that, that plays into one of the shows sort of informs the others. Like, did, did and that, was did the that come into? Yeah. Did that come into? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and it was it was really interesting because our show was a replacement show. So mm. they already had two or three other shows that were already on board right. that were going to continue. And then our show was going to be the new show. So we had to cast our actors based on their ability to not only do our show, but those other three shows. And sometimes you get someone who came in the door who was so perfect for the role in our show, but they couldn't. Hit the right notes for the other show, right? Or they would have a voice that was so right for our show, but like, and they were like a rock and roll singer. We loved that for our show because it was very contemporary pop. But then they also to do like the operatic show, right? And they couldn't do that. So yeah. it was a, it was absolutely that. It was absolutely amazing, and it was, it what was was incredible was how much of a system they had it down to, right? For how they would figure out that casting and and you know, th- those cruise ship performers, like they works, they work so hard yeah. and, and it's, and it's, it's difficult work, but it's exciting too. Cause you, you know, unlike doing a, a show on the road or off Broadway where you're doing the same show eight times a week, they get to do, you know, three, four, sometimes that they do some of the club shows, five or six different shows in a week. Right. So, but, uh, but yeah, but that was, <laughs> you're absolutely right. That was definitely a big challenge. And And sometimes you'd be like, we did it. We figured it out. Oh, yeah. would like fall apart.
0: Well, and the other piece, too, to me, that like the Rubik's Cube piece of it, and maybe this comes in with any show, but like the cast that you're limited to, you know, often it's, you know, maybe 12, 15 people like it's not it's not a huge cast. But often, like, there are review shows and stuff where there's, you know, multiple singing numbers and just figuring out the logistics of, like, in the Disney case, like, okay, we're going to have this woman play the fairy godmother in this scene, Mm -hmm. and then she has enough time to get into the Mary Poppins makeup for this scene, and then we need her back as, you know, Belle for the final dance number, like, whatever it is, like... Just figuring out, like, where is each person at each time? When when can they change? Who can play this role? As you say, you know, range and stuff comes into it as well. Like, that figuring out that logistics, to me, has yeah, always been Yeah, the tracking
1: through is, like, it's crazy. And, and then when you go backstage and it's like, you know, you've written in, you know, like in the script I would write, okay, this character does this scene and then I was I would think in my head like as I was writing like, well they have like a song off. So by by the end of the next song they'll be able to change into whatever costume that is, you know, yeah. thinking that before I'm really on the ship. And then you get on the ship. And it's like, okay, but they have to run down the staircase and you have got to go through this deck where there's there's people running by, so they have to avoid those people in their costume, then run down to the elevator room and get on the lift and blah, blah, blah. you know wow. you just don't think about that stuff so yeah. so so the backstage mechanics of how these performers pull it off is so incredible and so. I mean, I always feel like that's that's like the second show. Like you get the show that you are watching as an audience member on stage, and then if you could go backstage and watch, yeah. like that show is fascinating I'm sure. <laughs> because it's just it's just like sequence flying and drops coming in and, and scenery being hoisted into the wings, and right. it's, it's like this other side of it that is very exciting oh, that no so one gets cool. to see,
0: right? Um, I, I want to ask you, too, just about working in a theme park environment because you did Elmo the Musical yeah. for Sesame Place, like sort of the same question as a cruise ship. Like what were what were the differences, I guess, for for mounting a show in a theme park?
1: Well, that was also, I have to say, such a great thing because I, I grew up uh, working at Sesame Place. I was oh, a performer cool. there wow. when I was a teenager. So it was really cool to kind of, you know, quote unquote, go back home and, yeah. and get to like be part of it from the other side of things. The funny thing with the theme park is that you have to think about everything being repeated, you know, like several times a day. So something that you might write into a show that's going to get performed once a night maybe, or in, in a cruise ship's case, once or twice a, a, a cruise, with a theme park, you have to think, okay, this is gonna get performed six, seven, eight times a day in heavy in the heavy season, and you've got, you know, with characters like, Uh, like at sesame place you've got people inside of costumes so the shows can only be a certain length that they're not like passing out (laughs) and you know you're inside in our case the show i I created was inside so at least they're in air conditioning but it's a smaller space so you can only have this many characters because that's how many characters can fit backstage in the in the storage area so it was a lot of that it was a lot of like figuring out the repeatability of things about uh, taking in people's um uh, like the environment, you know, like they're they're leaving. It's mostly a summer park, so they're right. leaving hot, humid weather, where they're probably sweaty, and the kids are probably a little bit cranky. And so, you know, you've got to get them right away with a really big opening number that gets their attention, and the show can't be too long because people have other things they want to do that day. But it has to be long enough that it makes it feel like it was worth the wait. Right.
2: Um,
1: so it's it's really thinking about that, and even like you know the puppets that were built for that show, you know, again they're getting used you know, for eight shows a day, every single day. So it's like making sure that the way you would build a puppet for a TV thing where you can, if something rips, you can take a break and fix it, you know, during lunch, whatever. This is something that has to last all the time, all the time. So it was really, it was a lot of that. I learned so much just about how to make something that is gonna be, you know, worn down essentially and used a bunch, but can be repeated a bunch of times throughout the day and still look fresh and new. Yeah. And that's the way you cast to you have to find people who have really good endurance and dedication to giving the same show every single time. Right. But yeah, so that was that was kind of cool just to learn about, you know, just the logistics too that to go into how shows are planned and, you know, what, what, how, how long is the pre-show? Cause the pre-show has to make sure it doesn't end before the main show starts, mm. like all these different things. It was, I mean, I'm a theme park nerd. I love theme parks. Yeah, so it was too. really kind of, it was cool to kind of go behind the scenes and see the, for all the entertainment side that goes into it, just the logistics and planning side of it too.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. Um, well, you mentioned theme park nerd. I'm just curious. We'll sort of end it here, maybe. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> are, you, are you a big uh, Are you a big Disney person, right? Oh my gosh, yeah. Are you more a Florida person or more a Disneyland person?
1: Oh wow, that's a hard. Well, let's see. Well, I grew up on the East Coast, um, and so I didn't actually go to Disneyland until I was in my 20s. Yeah. I, I grew up only going to Disney World, right? And I I was that like kid who literally knew like no joke without even looking at the map I knew where every single like attraction was yep, totally. I knew like the best time to visit I knew where every restroom was like literally like I was like that like 12 year old nerd who like you know when I hear someone asking where the restroom is I would like answer for the Disney <laughs> <laughs> theme park lot um and, and I loved just like you know I think because of maybe because they are a bit like giant puppets I loved right. animatronics yep. so anything with animatronics in it I loved um, and my parents were amazing. They would like, they would literally like, we, I guess looking back, it was like the best vacation for them. Cause we'd go down there and they didn't think twice about like letting me, you know, at 12 years old, be at like the magic kingdom by myself, riding rides, Right. you know, like they, they were totally cool with that. And I just loved that. So, so I guess I'd have to say at least until recently I was an East coast boy, I was definitely a Disney World boy, but then when I moved out to California, I'm having Disneyland here all the time to take my friends to obviously fall in love with disneyland too yeah. so i don't know it's a little bit like like it's rosemary's choice i can't answer <laughs> i don't know i don't know what the answer is but For you sure. know
2: there is
0: there is but something nice there is something nice about disneyland of just being able to walk across the esplanade to the two parks yeah and not have to like yes, board a bus so, yeah
1: but then the other side of me is like oh i love like the, the fact that you have to like there's a there it feels so like you know wonderfully away from each other like yep. you know animal kingdom doesn't feel like it's in the same place right. as Magic kingdom, so there's that too
0: yeah definitely do you have a favorite hotel when you go to florida
1: oh that's a good question
0: i think i think it's animal kingdom lodge oh yeah
1: because i really love animals yep. and i've always i've always said like if i wasn't in entertainment and i didn't get to do this for a living i would absolutely work with animals somehow like yeah. i don't know if it, I'd, be a, I'd be a veterinarian or something like that but um I, I don't know. Yeah, I think being able to stay, quote unquote, on the savannah and yeah. like wake up to like giraffes outside your hotel room is kind right. of crazy.
0: I love that it's so remote, too. Like it it takes a long time to sort of get in the gates there and like you are just so far away from everything and then like that yeah. the smell of the the uh, the wood when you walk into the lobby, yeah, like from the restaurant, it's you're just like ooh, yeah. Like I am somewhere else right now.
1: I love that kind of thematic escape. I think I I was going to say, like if I wasn't going to say animal kingdom, I would have said the Polynesian Mm, because I I love Hawaii and I love anything tropical. And the same thing, like I feel like when you're at that resort, you feel like you're somewhere else. Yeah. But there's also like
0: the, the view of the castle from the Polynesian and you're just like, it, it's so cognitively dissonant, but it doesn't bother you. You're just like, oh, yeah, I'm in the South Seas, and there's a castle across the water, and, and this is perfect. There's a and this yeah.
1: giant steamboat going back and forth. What's happening right now? It yeah. all makes exactly. perfect sense,
0: and a futuristic hey. monorail behind me that just, like...
1: Yeah, you know what? It's so funny. I've never thought about it that way before, but you're absolutely right. I've never questioned it, which yeah. which should say everything. I sh- I've never been like, this is wrong. Yeah, it just <laughs> totally works
0: and it makes sense. And you're like, well, wait, but am I in Hawaii or where am I right now? But you
1: know what? Now, next time I go, I'm going to think about that. You've opened the door.
0: <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad this was uh, – I was able to add something. That's, uh, that's awesome. Uh, yeah. Thank you, John. I uh, I really enjoyed talking to you and uh, I could probably you ask do. you another, you know, two hours of questions because you've you've just done so many cool things and you know, entertainment oh, and Broadway and everything. But uh
1: I'm very lucky. Yeah. I'm very lucky.
0: Awesome. Uh and good luck with uh with Fraggle Rock. I hope that uh, Yeah, come you know, visit us when we're filming. Definitely come, come visit yeah. us. <laughs> when it's when it's safe to get on a plane again. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All right, John Tartaglia there. Wasn't that awesome? Oh my god. I just oh I learned so much and, uh, yeah, I want to like, I want to try puppeteering sometime. I'm not suggesting that I would be any good at it at all, but like, yeah, I'm definitely going to take him up on that offer and come out to Los Angeles sometime. And like, I want to put, you know, a fraggle (laughs) on my hand and just see what it feels like and see if I can make it talk. Believably. I don't know if I could. It's very arrogant to think that (laughs) I can put a puppet on my hand for the first time and make it come alive. But yeah, I've been watching guys like John do it my whole life, and uh, they're amazing. I have new shows every Monday and Thursday, so make sure you subscribe to get the latest. I'll be back next Monday. And uh, yeah, thank you for tuning in. I am at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. Shoot me a message. Let me know what's on your mind. Love hearing from you guys. And uh, we'll keep this show going. Don't forget to register to vote. Make your voice heard. Stay safe, everyone.